This is Real Fiction Radio. I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry, and today I'm interviewing Angie Kim, author of Miracle Creek. The sense of isolation makes you almost desperate to reach out and connect to other people. You're listening to WERA LP 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction is a place for novelists, poets, and journalists. We talk to authors about their new book releases, the people and events that inspired the story. We also cover the craft of writing and the path to publishing. Angie Kim's debut novel, Miracle Creek, has been universally praised by early reviewers. Kirkus Reviews said Angie Kim's Miracle Creek has intricate plotting and courtroom theatrics combined with moving insight into parenting special needs children and the psychology of immigrants. It's already been compared to beloved novels like Snow Falling on Cedars and Celeste Ng's Little Fires Everywhere. For me, Miracle Creek felt as though Kate Atkinson and Donna Tartt conspired to write a poetic thriller. But even that doesn't capture this singular new literary voice. Angie Kim lives in Virginia. She moved to Baltimore as a preteen from Seoul, South Korea, and was a trial attorney with Williams and Connolly in Washington, D.C. before turning to writing. Miracle Creek was published in April by Sarah Crichton Books, an imprint of Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Joining us in the studio to talk about her debut novel is Angie Kim. Welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you so much for having me here, Laurie. We're thrilled to have you. Before we talk about the novel, can you talk a little bit about your transition from a legal career to writing Miracle Creek? Sure. It was a very long and circuitous route, um, to say the least. I think I've had four careers um, since then, since being a lawyer. I was a trial lawyer at Williams & Connolly doing trial law, and I loved being in the courtroom. I loved questioning hostile witnesses. I loved trying to figure out what made them tick and sort of um, doing improv, as it were, in, in in the courtroom. And unfortunately for me, it turns out that only about 5% of being a trial lawyer involves being in a courtroom. <laughs> and I really didn't like the rest of it. <laughs> and so after not that many years of practicing, still in my 20s, I decided to leave the law. And I went to be a management consultant at McKinsey, also here in D.C. And um, I did a lot of marketing and uh, business strategy work and things like that. And a couple of my friends and I formed a dot-com during the whole dot-com heyday. And we had a startup. And then in 2001, I had my first child and I became a stay-at-home mom. And uh, we now have three boys. And I discovered writing maybe when my oldest child was about 10. We had gone through a lot of medical issues with actually all three kids. 
and they're all fine now. So it's it's completely resolved. But having gone through that, I really wanted to be able to write and tell the story of what it's like to go through um, such a challenging time when there's so much stress and anxiety about your children, which is, I think, the scariest thing that a parent can go through. Some writers say they don't like to read in their genre when they're crafting their story. And others say they read voraciously and religiously. Yeah. How did it work for you? I have to read. I have to read voraciously. And I really like to read lots of different things. Probably in writing this novel, the book that I turned to most often was Dennis Lehane's Mystic River, just because I loved that voice. And that voice really spoke to me and helped me whenever I was having trouble with, you know, writing the next scene or trying to figure out what the voice of a particular character should be. Mm. Just reading a little bit of that. I also read a lot of Tim O'Brien. I read a lot of Jennifer Egan. So there was just a wide range of things that I read that just sort of helped me. And something that was in a particular sentence or maybe paragraph or maybe a structural thing that one of those writers did would really make me feel like, okay, I'm excited by that. And I'm excited about the prospect of trying to experiment on my scenes using that kind of a technique or uh, that kind of rhythm or whatever it was that I was captured by. So that really helped me um, to write and, you know, really just feel inspired to go on on those days when you're like, oh, I'm 100 pages in. I have 300 more to go. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Well, all of the books you mentioned don't necessarily fit into one little category. So I can't, you know, they're plot-driven literary thrillers, which is the, I mean, my reaction to Miracle Creek was that it's a plot-driven literary thriller. Mm -hmm. But because it doesn't fit into a category neatly, how would you care, how do you characterize it? We've and by we, I mean my editors and my publicists. Right, the and team. I, we've, yeah, <laughs> we've sort of gone around and around. And I think that, you know, we've sort of said, look, there's there's sort of three elements of this. There's the literary novel that's really trying to f- delve into the lives of these characters, the Korean immigrant family, and also the group of parents of special needs children and children with chronic medical illnesses. So there's that and the family dynamics and the dynamics with the uh, friendships and other relationships. And then secondly, it's a courtroom thriller. There are courtroom scenes, and I really hope that they're exciting and fun because I love courtroom scenes. Um, That's why I became a lawyer. And I had so much fun writing those. So I really hope that they are fun and thrilling. And then the third is it's a murder mystery. And it's not just a whodunit, but it's also, a, I think more importantly, a how done it and a why done it. Um, so even if you think you might know who did, who set the fire, which is the sort of inciting incident that sort of sets this whole novel into motion. I think it's more important to try to figure out as you're reading the novel, to figure out the mystery of, well, how 
did that come to be? How did those people or that person set the fire in a way that's consistent with what all the characters are telling us as we go through the novel? So I think that's the fun challenge. And I personally love mysteries like that, where you have to sort of, you know, really think and trust the author that, you know, she's giving you the clues and try to figure it out. I think it's an intellectual challenge and I love it. Well, I can tell you that as I was reading the novel, I had no idea (laughs) who did it, how they did it. Even though the clues are meticulously plotted, they're done in, they're they're there in such a sly, clever way. It could have gone any way. Right, right. But can you walk us through HBOT? Sure. And tell us what that stands for and its significance to you and the story. Sure. So HBOT stands for Hyperbaric Oxygen Therapy. And it's a real thing. It exists in hospitals. And the traditional use that's the conventional use that's approved by the FDA um, include things like carbon monoxide poisoning and diving accidents when you have the bends and things like that. And there is an off-label use or experimental use that exists for lots of different therapies. And in this case of HBOT, it's been used for a variety of things, but it's become pretty popular in the world, as I understand it, of cerebral palsy and also autism and Lyme disease, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, things like that. I became introduced to it when I actually did it with one of my children. So one of my kids became an HBOT patient. And that happened because one of my kids was born deaf in one ear, and it's called auditory neuropathy. And his ear is fine, but there's something going on with neurologically such that he couldn't process the sound from that ear. There was a lot of medical detective work when he was a baby, trying to figure out are there other associated neuropathies or other neurological issues and things like that. And so we were in and out of hospitals a lot. And we ended up, when he was maybe around two or three, feeling like it was resolved in the sense that he still couldn't hear out of that ear, but there were no other neurological problems. And, you know, we were pretty settled into a routine of speech therapy and auditory processing therapy to, you know, help him cope and things like that. Right when we thought things were resolved, then he got hit with a couple of other completely unrelated diagnoses, celiac disease and ulcerative colitis. And so celiac disease, you know, which is gluten-free, which is now everywhere, and everybody sort of rolls their eyes and says, oh, yeah, that's so easy because all the restaurants have gluten-free menus now. It wasn't that way when he was, you know, three, four years old. And um, it was really difficult. And even more difficult was ulcerative colitis. None of the conventional diets and medicines and things like that were working to heal him. And so he was uh, not gaining weight. He was throwing up. He was in pain and crying. And when that happens to, you know, your little guy, he was four, and, you know, it's just heartbreaking. And I became sort of desperate to try anything as long as it was, you know, sort of safe and approved by the doctors. And I became introduced to this HBOT chamber that was going to open up in Northern Virginia, maybe 10 minutes from my house, um, right as I was going through this. And a friend of mine told me about it. We 
went to the HBOT center to look at it. And my son pointed at it, and he was four. And he said, look, it's a, it's a submarine. Because to him, it looked just like the Beatles' yellow submarine that we had watched for family movie night. And because it has like four portholes, just like the Beatles' yellow submarine, and you know, it has the hatch opening, and it has the thick you know, metal frame, and it looks like a submarine. And so from then on, it was the submarine, and we were always going for dives and things like that. He and I would go in every day, and we did double dives. So we did two dives a day, and the dives are one-hour sessions, and you're in there with three other patients and their caregivers. So four families sealed in for an hour at a time, and then the kids put on these oxygen hoods that sort of look like astronaut helmets, and they breathe in pure oxygen. And it was just such an intimate and intense experience for me because the kids in there, you know, they had DVDs to watch of Barney and Sesame Street and things like that. The um, HBOT operator wisely um, set stuff up to entertain the kids while they were sitting inside and just put the screens outside the portholes so that they could see. But for the parents who didn't really want to watch, you know, Barney and Sesame Street the entire time, there was really nothing to do because of the risk of fire, because of the presence of oxygen. We weren't allowed to bring in phones, uh, electronics, nothing. So we sat there and we talked. We traded life stories with each other. And I was in there a lot with families dealing with autism and cerebral palsy and the relativity or the hierarchy of disabilities that you just asked about, Lori, is just so, it became such a painful thing for me to deal with emotionally myself because until that experience, I had thought of us as pretty unlucky and unfortunate because I felt like we had so much stuff to deal with, not only with this kid that I just told you about, but my two other kids had other issues. One of my kids had anaphylactic allergies to multiple things that was really scary, and um, another one had, he, he actually ended up not having this, but they thought he had microcephaly because he has a really small head, and it turned out to be sort of a medical scare. But for several years, we thought he had this very scary condition called microcephaly. So all this stuff happened, and I was feeling sorry for our family and for my kids, feeling like, oh, you know, we've been dealt this rotten, you know, medical luck. But then you go in there and you meet these other kids um, who are in wheelchairs, who have feeding tubes, who can't talk, who can't run and jump and sing the way that my kid could. And it made me feel so guilty, like almost sort of shameful that... I had had these thoughts and hadn't recognized how lucky I was. And I also felt so lucky and fortunate at the same time. So it was all this swirling of emotions. And it really made me think a lot about the hierarchy, if you will, of these disabilities and sort of the relativity of happiness and all these sort of philosophical things that as a philosophy major in college, I had probably thought about it in an intellectual way, but didn't really play out in real life until I went through this experience. So that's why I think the HBOT experience and that setting of the HBOT chamber was really so important to me and really something that I turned to almost immediately as, a, as soon as I started thinking about what, what is the setting and what is the story for this novel that I want to start to write.
there's a lot to do in the novel with the idea of assimilation. And so over the course of the years, it seems like the character Mary assimilates quite well Mm -hmm. to living in the U.S. Mm -hmm. There are some references to the idea that a goal is to kind of pass for normal. Yes. When you're new to a new country. Mm -hmm. And something fascinated me in the text. You said that there's sometimes there's an an inability to lose an accent. And there's and I think the line has something to do with the tongue changes after puberty. Yeah, the tongue sets after puberty. Yeah, that's what I've always heard. Yeah. I was fascinated by that. Is that something that you've you've read about? Yeah, I've read it. Yes, I've read it. And I've definitely experienced it as well. So I came here at age 11. And I came here with a lot of my cousins, some of whom were a little younger, and some of whom were a little older. And, you know, the ones who came when they were a little older and had already gone through puberty, still have an accent. Whereas those of us who came when we were just a year or two younger, do not. And so that always fascinated me, and I looked into it at one point, and there was this explanation of there being a tie to when you learn a language before you go through puberty, it's much easier to lose the accent. I always thought of it more as a mindset rather than than a, a physical, than an actual physical thing. Right, yeah, a physical I'm, thing. Yeah, no, I don't know if it is a physical thing. I, I don't. I have no idea what it is. It, right. it, it, could, it, could, it could be a neurological thing. It, it may not be the tongue itself. Mind and body connection. Be, absolutely, <laughs> it may be like a neurological right. thing or whatever. But that's what I've. Um, that's what I understand, and that definitely seems to bear out if you look at my extended family for sure. And and I think the idea of normalcy is so. Interesting, because I think for both of these groups of characters that I tried to highlight in the novel, the Korean immigrant family, as well as the parents of children with special needs and medical issues, I think one thing that's similar about them that I hope comes through in the novel is how isolating that can be. And this idea that you're being displaced. I mean, obviously, when you immigrate, you're displaced. But even if you're not physically experiencing displacement, as the parent of a child who, it, who goes through a diagnosis involving a chronic illness that's long-ranging, I think there's a sense of isolation, deep isolation, a feeling like the people that you used to interact with in playgroups or your friends or whatever just don't have the same life that you do and you feel like you're in a different world and a different community and so then the sense of isolation makes you almost desperate to reach out and connect to other people and i think that's what this whole desire to be normal quote unquote is all about is that you just want that connection again with other people and you want the connection with your old world where you did feel like everything was okay there is a scene in the story i believe it's the teresa character mm-hmm. she she has a a moment where she talks about that that i think mm-hmm. the the term is transmutation, transmuting, that when you go through that feeling of isolation or medical exceptionalism, you, it changed, it changes the way you look at the world. I think it's changes your gravitational axis, if I remember correctly. Yes. That's what you're referring to. Exactly. 
You have seven points of view. It's ambitious to do that in any novel and certainly in a in a first novel. Uh-huh. <laughs> did anyone ever advise you to go in a different direction? Or did you always know that you wanted to write this in multiple points of view? I always knew that I wanted to write this in multiple points of view. So one of the first things that I did when I sat down to write, which was about six months into sort of free writing by hand, all the different characters, like diary entries and things like that that I did, I sat down in front of my laptop to write, and the first document, I still have it on my laptop, is called Structure Options. And Mm. so I thought of all the different ways that I could structure the novel, and the one that I kept on coming back to was Russell Banks, The Sweet Hereafter. There's a disaster with a bus bus accident in the beginning of the novel, and then, you know, you, he goes through, I think it's four different points of view and tells the story from the four different perspectives. And through the different perspectives, we get to learn a little more about what may or may not have happened and and what the aftermath is. And so I really wanted to do something similar to that. Each chapter is a different uh, character, and sometimes I repeat, most characters have more than one chapter. And I actually had five points of view, and then my agent, after I signed up with her, she said, you know, I'm really fascinated about these two other characters that don't have their own POVs. I really want to learn more. Can you please do a couple more <laughs> POVs? And I was like, You're oh, like, no problem. I'll okay, throw sure, in two more yeah, people. <laughs> all right, I'll do that. So we did that. Um, so yeah, so now we have seven. Well, what is the process like for creating complex characters? And what I mean by that is as they started to become real on the page for you, mm-hmm. did it change your perspective about your parents, in, in your personal life, your parents' own experience or just judgmental parents yeah. wh- that you may have encountered on Definitely. some of these medical Yeah, so adventures. not really judgmental characters. I think I feel like on, the, uh, on that side, I feel like I have characters that are sort of doing the judging and who are being judged and uh, in the novel. And I think I, through the technique of putting their two perspectives and pitting them against each other in the courtroom. I hope that I've given voice to both viewpoints because, you know, I think that there are um, interesting viewpoints to be had. But I think it's fascinating that you're asking me about the way that it may have changed my viewpoint about my parents because it absolutely did. I'm not sure that it changed it, but it's just I hadn't realized really what my parents had gone through. I had been so focused on me. Now I'm the only child. I went through this experience as a child. And so I don't think I really thought about what it must have been like for my parents. And I wrote some essays about the whole immigration experience, but even in those essays, they were written from my perspective. So, you know, I never really had to think about it from my parents' perspective. When I started writing this novel, Young Yu, who is the mother, is, if you're going to have one main character, she would probably be the one, she's the one who starts and ends the novel. And so I had to do a lot of writing from her perspective. And I had to do a lot of thinking through what is this mother, what is she going to feel about 
going from a stay-at-home mom who basically spent all the time with her only daughter to being in a new country where you have to basically leave her with other people and go work 18 hours a day in a place that's geographically separated from her. What would that be like? And it really just tore me apart for the first time. And I think that maybe one of the reasons why Young Yu did become sort of the grounding character who starts and ends the novel and why I think, you know, writing writing this novel just really helped me to, per, to understand their perspective. And in a lot of ways, I really owe a lot of gratitude, uh, owe a debt to the novel. The novel is Miracle Creek, and we'll mention that it was published by Sarah Crichton Books, an imprint of Farrar Strauss and Giroux. It's available everywhere books are sold. We want to mention that. Can you tell us anything about what you're working on now? I'm working on a second novel, and I'm still at the stage where I'm sort of doing free writing, thinking about the characters, and thinking about what their relationships are like. So I couldn't really say much, but I will say that it involves a biracial family, and it does involve siblings, the youngest of whom is nonverbal, And when he, and at the beginning of the novel, he and the father go out for a walk, and only the little brother, who's nonverbal, returns home, and the father never returns home. And so the older siblings become obsessed with trying to find some sort of way to communicate with the little brother to solve the mystery of what happened to the father. (laughs) <laughs> wow. <laughs> what is it like to, to start again? Is after going through copy edits, line by mm-hmm. line copy edits, and then mm-hmm. you're staring at the blank page again, did you, did you use the same methodology to set up a structure? I haven't. I'm actually not even there yet. So I'm still at the free writing stage, but it's terrifying. And my writing nook is still full of notes and chronologies and all of these charts and diagrams that I have of the plot of this novel. And one of these days, I'm I'm gonna have to actually commit by taking all those down and cleaning out the space and starting afresh. And I'm not quite there yet. So the second time is not necessarily easier. No, not at all. In fact, I think it might be harder because now I'm just so exhausted from having written the first one. That's that's understandable. Well, we thank you so much for coming to the program today. Again, the novel is Miracle Creek by Angie Kim. Thanks to everyone for listening. We're on every Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7 FM, streaming on WERA FM, and you can find us at realfictionradio.com. Angie, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.